Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode, we'll take you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery and human trafficking. We'll look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking, and bring you a roundup of all the latest developments from ESG regulation to revealing research. Welcome to episode 10 of Fast the Podcast. This is the last episode in this series. Over the previous nine episodes, we've covered everything from the financial logic of modern slavery to anti money laundering to insurance, due diligence, and the role of investors. All of that can get a little abstract. For this last episode, I want to return us to what this effort to mobilize finance against slavery and trafficking is really all about people. The financial sector clearly has a role to play in preventing modern slavery and reducing risks. But the reality is that it's going to take time to reduce modern slavery risks. And in the meantime, people, millions of people, will still be suffering violations of their human right to be free from slavery. Today, we ask what can and should the financial sector do to help these people, specifically to remedy their harms? We've got a stellar lineup from frontline activists and lawyers helping to secure remedies for victims of trafficking to experts on corporate and non judicial grievance mechanisms. So let's get started. Under human rights law, survivors of modern slavery and human trafficking have a right to a remedy. That can mean compensation, it can mean an apology, restitution, a whole range of things. But that right is often very hard to realize. Court processes are long and costly, and outcomes often rest on very technical questions. The UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights make clear that there's a role here for both states and the private sector to play in helping survivors to realize their right to a remedy. And the UN Guiding Principles also make clear that there's a role for both judicial and non-judicial grievance mechanisms. Since modern slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking are illegal, the best result would often be judicial remedy, vindication of rights through the courts. But that's often easier said than done. To understand why it's difficult for victims of modern slavery and human trafficking to vindicate their rights through courts and what that might mean for the financial sector, I spoke with two leading frontline actors who have been fighting for survivors' right to remedy for many years. First, I spoke with Jamila Duncan Bosu. I'm very pleased to be joined by Jamila Duncan Bosu, Head of the Compensation Unit at Anti-Trafficking and Labor Exploitation Unit, or APLU. Ms. Duncan Bosu, thank you for joining Fast the Podcast. Thank you for having me. Tell us a bit about ATLU. How does it work and what's your role there? So ATLU, or the Anti-Trafficking and Labor Exploitation Unit, is a... Um, legal charity, which was set up in 2012 to work exclusively with victims of trafficking and modern slavery. So I was actually one of the founders of the organisation. I'm an employment lawyer by training, and I had been working with lots of victims of domestic servitude. So these were mainly women who had been trafficked to the UK to be nannies or housekeepers and found themselves in really difficult situations. So it was a whole spectrum of mistreatment. So these were women who were often being physically and sexually abused. 
on the other end of the scale, being required to work really onerous hours with little or no salary. So I started looking at what sort of solutions could be found to that situation, i.e. getting them compensation for that situation, because a lot of that was happening behind closed doors. So it was difficult for criminal prosecutions, et cetera, to take place. But what we could do was use employment legislation to obtain compensation for that treatment. So out of that work, the Anti-Trafficking and Labour Exploitation Unit grew because we would see victims who had, obviously there was scope for compensation claims, but often they had issues with their immigration status that would need regularising, or they had housing issues which would need to be dealt with. So myself and four other colleagues ended up setting up ATLU, and from there it grew. We're the only national charity in the UK working exclusively with victims of trafficking and modern slavery and looking at legal solutions to try and get them redress and compensation for the treatment they've suffered. In or around 2013, I was referred a group of Hungarian men who had been trafficked into the UK for forced labour. So they'd been placed in factories in the north of England, one of which was a bed factory called Cozy Sleep. So this was a bed factory which was manufacturing mattresses for really reputable businesses in the UK. But sadly, lots of that labour was traffic labour. So the factory boss had a deal with some with another group of Hungarians. And what they would do was go to Hungary, look around homelessness shelters, drug rehab shelters. They were looking for individuals who were basically, you know, in a down on their luck, you know, vulnerable individuals. And they would essentially approach them and make an offer of a shiny new life in the UK. So they were offered employment where they would be earning up to sort of £250 a week. They were told that they would be given a good accommodation. They were told that they would be found roles in factories where they would be able to have regular work, reasonable sums of money, which they would be able to send back to Hungary to support family members. So I was referred a group of clients who, having been in forced labour for many years, had managed to escape. What they reported were incredibly poor and exploitative conditions. So having agreed to take work in the UK in these factories and expecting to find decent jobs with decent terms and conditions and reasonable accommodation, what they found were they were crammed into houses, often four or five to a bedroom, no bed, mattresses, sleeping on the floor. The trafficker put aside £20 a week for up to 14 men to eat every day. So, you know, they were often they were starving. But on top of that, the work that they were actually promised was incredibly poor. So it was skilled work in these factories, but they were given no real training. So these men were operating machines often, but they'd been given no health and safety training. They were being given instructions in English. And one one of the um, clients who had slightly better English was able to understand and pass those instructions on but often it was lots of gestures and pointing and so on. But all of this was done in a climate of fear because far from being paid a reasonable salary, they were in fact being controlled by these two traffickers who had brought them into the UK and entered into this deal with the factory boss. So they would be required to work up to 15, 16 hours a day in some occasions, six or seven days a week for some of the men. And at the end of the week, they would only receive £10 and two packets of tobacco all of the money was being taken by the two traffickers. The factory boss was clearly in cahoots with the traffickers 
because on the occasions the workers spoke to the factory boss and suggested that they were paid directly. He responded by saying that he would tell the traffickers and they took that to understand that there would be some kind of physical retribution. So what also followed were lots of stories about what these traffickers could potentially do to them. So there were stories of the trafficker having beaten somebody to death. There were stories of the trafficker having put a noose around somebody's neck. There were stories of men disappearing in the middle of the night. Whether this was true or not, it was something that they all genuinely believed. So we're very much living in a culture of fear. There were lots and lots of men being treated in this fashion. As I say, only 15 of them were referred to me. There were men in this situation for maybe weeks or months at a time who would eventually run away and and move to different parts of the country. So anecdotally, we know that this was widespread and going on for a long period of time. One of the men eventually ran away and spoke to somebody at a soup kitchen who eventually then spoke to an anti-trafficking charity in the north of England. So they began working with the police and persuaded one of the men that actually they would be safe if they were to leave. So essentially an operation was set up whereby the men sort of set off for work, but really didn't go, didn't really go to work. They are headed to an agreed spot where this charity, Hope for Justice, were waiting for them along with members of the police. So that's eventually how they were rescued. So the police took away a first group of workers and others then felt courage to come forward and they were able to rescue others. So having rescued these men, they were able to take very detailed witness statements and pursue criminal prosecutions of the two men who had trafficked them into the UK. So they were prosecuted and they were sentenced to sort of two to three years each. Having prosecuted the two traffickers, the police then turned their attention to the factory boss, because by this time there was very clear criminal legislation around trafficking and exploiting individuals. They were also able to prosecute the factory boss. So the traffickers, the two traffickers and the factory boss, were all prosecuted for trafficking offences and were all given criminal sentences. So that was good. These men had done their civic duty by assisting in these criminal prosecutions. But having spent, for some of the men, several months, weeks, and for some of them up to years in forced labour, they were now in an extremely, extremely difficult position. All of them were in poor physical condition having lived in, you know, really poor conditions, not having had access to decent healthcare and so on. One man described sort of pulling a tooth because he'd not had access to a dentist, etc. They'd not been given sort of decent clothing. One man described breaking into a clothing bank in order to be able to get himself some warm clothing. So they were all in sort of dire physical straits. In addition, they had family members that they had wanted to support and none of them had seen a reasonable you know, reasonable wage throughout the time they'd been in forced labour. So they were referred to me to look at the possibility of obtaining a compensation for their treatment. So what we really wanted to do was to bring claims against the factory for exploiting exploiting these workers. Now, unfortunately, in the UK, there is no civil remedy for trafficking and exploiting somebody. So there is a criminal offence, but there's no corresponding civil offence and therefore no civil remedy. So a victim of trafficking can't go to a court or tribunal and say, I was trafficked, or I have been subjected to modern slavery, compensate me for that. In fact, what they have to do is bring claims which cover the component parts of their treatment. So for these workers, we brought claims in the High Court, which essentially said, well, there's been a breach of contract, 
because I'd agreed to come to the UK and work in these factories and I should have received a reasonable salary for that. I had a legitimate expectation. So these are breach of contract complaints. We looked at what else is happening here. They're being subjected to harassment. This is clearly unwanted conduct. So we also brought protection from harassment complaints. We then looked at, well, their movements had been controlled. The relationship between the factory boss and the two traffickers meant that they were in this state of fear all the time. So again, that's akin to being kept in, you know, in a, in a state of false imprisonment. So it was really very much looking at the sort of component parts of what had happened to them to try and bring a multitude of claims, which would hopefully compensate them for their treatment. The difficulty then arose in that the factory itself went into administration. So it had essentially closed down. So there'd be no factory to, there'd be no one to compensate the workers, even if we obtained a judgment. However, it is possible to bring a claim directly against an insurance company. So in this situation, what we did was issue the claims against the business in the hope that when we got judgment, we could then take those judgments to the insurance company and enforce against them. However, there was another difficulty in that, which again, dodgy factory boss, one shouldn't be that surprised, but unfortunately the insurance companies that they purchased insurance from had also gone into insolvency. So over the material time for the group of clients I had, there were five different insurance companies, only one of which was solvent. The court have case managed the cases in the sense that we dealt with the um, case against the one solvent insurer first and then moved on to dealing with the other parts of the case. So the judgment in Balog was the three individuals bringing claims at a point where there was an insolvent insurer. So faced with an insolvent insurer, the only other way of enforcing a judgment from the High Court would be to present that to the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. So that's essentially uh, the body that underwrites insurance companies. So as you can see, there were lots of hurdles for these workers to get over because not only do we have an insolvent and closed down business, we have an insolvent insurer as well. So it took quite some time to get uh, these cases to the High Court and actually get judgment because we had to restore the cosy sleep to the company register because it had gone into administration and essentially had been struck off. So the process involved in getting that restored to the company register. So that caused some delay. But actually, the really, really significant delay in these cases arose from the fact that these were funded by legal aid. So these were publicly funded cases. So you'll see that actually, you know, the, the exploitation suffered happened between sort of 2012 and 2013. These cases were issued in the High Court around 2018. And we only got judgment in, in 2021. This is the case of Balog and others and Hick Lane Betting Limited, decided by the Queen's Bench Division of the England and Wales High Court earlier this year, 2021. Jamila Duncan Bossu describes a long and arduous process that Mr. Balog and the other survivors had to endure to bring their case. The first step was securing government provided legal aid. Having concluded that they were the type of case that they could fund, it was then suggested that they didn't have good prospects of success. We then had to go back and point out that, you know, the traffickers were in prison and had been arrested and there was a huge amount of evidence available. So these were certainly cases that the legal aid agency should be funding. You know, that position was refused. It was then suggested that solicitors in the private sector could conduct the claims under a no-win, no-fee agreement. But actually, these workers don't speak English. They need interpreters. 
They needed medical reports to confirm that they'd suffered personal injury. And no win, no fee agreements don't cover that. These are what were known as disbursements. So they didn't need to be paid as they fooled you. So the only way that these workers or these victims of trafficking could fund a compensation claim was with the assistance of the government through the legal aid regime. So there was a lengthy period of time having to threaten legal action against the legal aid agency, for example, before everything fell into place. And it was agreed that these were cases which ought to be funded. The judgment that we got from the High Court with awards of over, you know, almost over £200,000 each demonstrate that it was the right decision for the legal aid agency. That one of the things I should add is that when the legal aid agency or essentially the government provides legal aid to pursue a compensation claim, it's a loan from the public purse. So having been successful in these claims and been awarded compensation, when these judgments are enforced, the first thing these workers will have to do is repay the legal aid agency, so repay the government fund. So as I say, it wasn't an easy process getting to the high court. Having issued the claims and got to the high court, the next issue really was, well, how would compensation be calculated in these cases? So as I say, we had brought a range of legal claims in the hope that we could be compensated for the component parts of the treatment. So in the case of Balog, each of the three workers had suffered psychiatric injury as a result of what had happened to them. And each worker was in a position where that injury had impacted on their ability to work in the future. So we were really clear that we wanted to compensate them for the the mental injury they had suffered, but we needed some sort of compensation to cover the the inability to work in the future. So each was going to need a couple of years to get themselves in a position where they would be able to to work in a full-time capacity again. For example, each had um, obtained a medical legal report where it was clear that they would need some sort of therapy to really get themselves into a position where they could work again. So the recommendations had been made for things such as CBT. Again, being Hungarian speakers who would need interpreters, etc., Again, whilst these things might be possible, you know, through the NHS, etc., what we wanted was to be able to get sufficient compensation for these men to be able to obtain therapy as quickly as possible in the private sector with Hungarian interpreters if necessary. We were also clear that we needed the types of awards of compensation which an insurance policy would cover. So, for example, an insurance policy would probably not cover something like the failure to pay wages, but it would pay things like injuries suffered in the in the course of employment or suffered on the factory floor. So that's why we thought we were that bringing our claims under the Protection from Harassment Act and using things such as false imprisonment, where the head of damage was personal injury, would get us awards that would cover the treatment the, the workers had suffered. These were also awards that an insurance would that would be covered by an insurance policy we would then get a judgment we could go to the financial services compensation scheme with, say these are harms these these men have suffered. These happened in the course of employment or on the factory floor at the Cozy Sleep Bed Factory. So we would ordinarily have been able to recover under the insurance policy. The insurer is now insolvent. Will you, the financial services compensation scheme, now make good and pay these orders of compensation? So fortunately, the court were very understood what it was we were trying to do and were clear that the claims that we had brought and the way in which compensation could be calculated 
could be done in a way that would enable the, the workers to recover. So in each case, the um, judge made, a, made an award which covered their personal injury. So they all um, received awards of general damages. So that covered the pain, suffering and loss of immunity. And they were also given compensation to cover the inability to work in the future. We then also received awards of special damages. So again, that was the, so if you like, that's the actual out-of-pocket expenses. So that's the award that covers the therapy with a Hungarian interpreter and any other sort of needs that they would have to be rehabilitated and enter into the, into the workplace again. How much of these awards are the claimants actually likely to see in the end, Jamila? Well, that's not an easy question. So as I said before, we can go to the financial services compensation scheme. And what ideally should happen is that the financial services compensation scheme check with the claims handler for the insolvent insurance company, whether there was a valid insurance policy, and if so, simply pay out. Unfortunately, in 2020, the solvent insurance company, so in relation to two other claimants who had also been victims of this trafficker, so had been trafficked into the bed factory, their claims against the solvent insurer failed because the solvent insurer argued that the insurance policy had been obtained by material misrepresentation. So they said, if we had known there had been trafficked workers in this factory, we would never have sold it an insurance policy. We are therefore cancelling it, which means that there is, they're not on the hook to pay the awards of compensation. So there is a risk in the case of Balog and others that when we present to the financial services compensation scheme, that the claims handler for the insurance insolver says, hang on a minute, we've just seen this case. We also want to cancel the insurance policy. Now, I've sought permission to appeal that position and the High Court's granted permission to appeal. We don't have a hearing date yet. So back to your question, will Balog and others actually see this money? The answer is it really depends. It may be that the insolvent claims handler doesn't put up any resistance and simply allows the financial services compensation scheme to pay the pay compensation to them. Or it may resist and argue that the policy itself is invalid and therefore there's no duty to pay. And if that happens, there's a, an appeal in the future. But if that appeal goes against us, if the law remains that it's entirely lawful for an insurance company in these circumstances to cancel the policy, then they will be in the position of not being able to enforce these judgments and they won't see a penny of it. And that would leave them with the, there is an absolute last resort of making an application to the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority. So that's a government fund to compensate victims of violent crime. That wouldn't be without difficulty because there are time limits which they've missed, etc. But there is an absolute last resort that we could explore, but hopefully we wouldn't be in that position. So there's just a huge number of hurdles here, clearly, Ms. Duncan yeah. Bossu, that, that, that you've all had to jump through to even get the prospect of success here. Is this fairly typical or is this an atypical case for claimants like this? I think this is unusual in the sense that we've had all of the sort of difficulties with the insurance company, etc. But the fact that obtaining compensation can be a lengthy and protracted process, unfortunately, that's completely typical. So it's possible to get compensation, and it's extremely important that victims do pursue the compensation claim. 
it's often the thing that helps them to rebuild their lives and stop the, you know, what can be a revolving door. I mean, I see clients who have been trafficked and then re-trafficked and re-trafficked. So the thing that can really break that cycle is having access to compensation and compensation they actually receive and, you know, they actually get in their hands. The story in the UK is matched by the situation in Europe, Suzanne Hoff, International Coordinator of La Strada, told me. La Strada International is a European NGO platform against trafficking in human beings. The International Secretariat is based in Amsterdam, and we currently comprise 30 members and associate members in, uh, in 23 European countries. The platform aims to prevent human trafficking and to protect and realize traffic persons' uh, rights. And this is done by providing access to adequate assistance and support to trafficked and exploited persons. And we also do that via information and knowledge exchange, capacity building of NGOs and other stakeholders, and also cross-sectoral cooperation. And lastly, much focus of our platform is also put on monitoring and advocacy for change. Also, of course, to ensure accountability for the effective implementation of European anti-trafficking uh, policies and also regulations. Now, accountability is, is a topic we're focusing on in this episode. And in a recent project, uh, a long-standing project, La Strada International focused in particular on right to remedy in its Justice at Last project. Can you tell us a bit about that project, Suzanne? Yes, as for Justice at Last, I actually have to say that since 2008, we have actually been calling for more access to compensation, as we saw it as a major bottleneck for victims of trafficking to assess access to compensation. And this project was uh, called um, Justice at Last European Action for Compensation for Victims of Crime, and it was partly funded by the European Union uh, Justice Programme. And we, together with our partners in 10 different European countries, we aim to enhance access to compensation for trafficked persons, but also victims of related crimes. As you probably well known, a lot of victims of trafficking are maybe never identified as trafficked or never, or there might not be a successful prosecution for trafficking, but that's clear that they were severely exploited or abused. This project, the project activities, they looked at the identification and legal analysis of compensation claims. We also looked at remaining gaps, in particular related to victim needs, but also referral of victims for compensation claims and actually the receipt and payment of claims. We did uh, international trainings with legal professionals, uh, seminars, focus groups, meetings, and we also launched the European campaign to promote access to compensation and remedies. Now, when we talk about this, about the access to compensation for victims and survivors of human trafficking, are we talking about something that's a policy ask that we think is a good idea or is there more to it? Do these victims and survivors have some kind of a right to compensation? Yes, for victims of crime, including victims of trafficking, the right to compensation is, is actually quite well recognised and also well established, both in international and also in European legislation. 
for example, both the UN Convention on Transnational Organized Crime and also the Trafficking Protocol uh, oblige states parties to establish appropriate procedures to provide access to compensation and restitution for victims of trafficking. And there's also a lot of other international legislation, for example, the ILO Protocol to the Forced Labor Convention of 2004, Article 1, also requires states to take effective measures to provide uh, to victims protection and access to appropriate and effective remedies, such as uh, compensation. Uh, in Europe, there's also quite good legislation that provides for uh, the access to compensation. For example, there's the Council of Europe Convention on Action Against Trafficking in Human Beings of 2005. And here, Article 15 gives the rights to compensation. And it's also mentioned and reflected in the European Convention on the Compensation of Violent Crimes. And then, of course, there's also AU law. The AU Anti-Trafficking Directive of 2011, Article 17, provides for the rights to compensation. And the right is also reflected in the AU Victims Directive of 2012. Actually, uh, the European Commission uh, has launched a European strategy for the rights of victims of crime and that also has a major focus on compensation. And also at AU level, there's a council directive related to compensation to victims of crime already of 2004. So I would say that there's quite a lot of uh, legislation in place and policies in place that ensure that these rights exist. So it's not so much an issue of having good uh, legislation. And do they work? these rights and entitlements? Do victims and survivors receive compensation? Ah, yeah, that's, of course, uh, a completely different matter. And that's also one of the reasons why we started this project. What we see that even though access to compensation is well recognized and, and very well reflected in international and European legislation, there is a major gap between the actual situation on paper and the practice. In principle, we see it's quite difficult for victims of trafficking for various reasons to claim compensation and also especially to obtain compensation payments. What are some of the barriers that they face? Why is it difficult for them? There are a lot of barriers. One of the barriers is, of course, that victims of trafficking are still not identified as victims of trafficking. So then, of course, it's uh, much more difficult also to have them to get the information to make them aware of these rights. But there are also a lot of other bottlenecks. Obstacles also include lack of awareness among the police and the judicial system. There's a lack of access to legal aid and adequate information to victims, as I mentioned already. Also, we see if we talk about court cases, we see the postponement of trials and the long duration of criminal and civil proceedings. And what we also see in case of foreign victims, often their return or deportation already to the country of origin before a verdict is reached. And there's also other reasons for denying compensation. It could be their uh, irregular immigration status or maybe their involvement uh, in working in the sex industry. So we see there is a lot of yeah, difficulties, even when compensation is granted. And what kinds of schemes are we talking about here, Suzanne? Are these victims of crime compensation schemes or are they civil actions? How do most states approach the realisation of these rights? Yeah, in principle, victims of crime can claim compensation either from their perpetrators or from the state 
or they can claim remedies from the private sector in case they were responsible, for example, for the human rights violations, or it's, of course, also possible to claim compensation from those people who and companies who profit from exploitation and abuse, although there is uh, less practice so far to do that. There are different ways of claiming compensation. It can be claimed via criminal court procedures, via civil court procedures, including also via uh, labor courts. And as you mentioned already, uh, many European countries also have state compensation funds in place, and these are mostly accessible for victims of violent crimes. And there are, of course, also alternative non-legal options, so as uh, like uh, mediation, claiming money from another social support or insurance funds. But as mentioned in general, there's a large gap between all these legal possibilities and ensuring uh, the rights in practice. Yeah, it sounds quite daunting. I suspect for some of our listeners, many of whom are from the financial sector, this also sounds quite daunting and like a problem that it's going to be up to states to fix primarily. Is that right? Or is there a role for financial sector actors to to help address these challenges in some way? Yeah, of course. It's not only entirely a question for states For sure, we see that early financial investigations and assets recovery is very, very important for a successful compensation claim. And of course, also cooperation among all relevant actors. So uh, hence, uh, financial institutions are also very relevant here. What we see is that not all relevant actors are yet sufficiently engaged in supporting trafficked and exploited persons. Yeah, we need this cooperation more. If we specifically talk about financial institutions, uh, it's, of course, very important that more insight is obtained into how much uh, money the human trafficking uh, has generated. And banks, of course, can help to detect this information. And this information can, of course, also be used as a financial evidence for conviction and then also for the evidence for the amount that must therefore be paid to the victim in compensation. In the Netherlands, for example, and I think there was a podcast on that before, there's a project Cochrim, where different banks work together to get more insight into this. We also see that without conviction in practice, yeah, we see very little compensation paid and very often too little evidence. And so more and more should uh, there's an emphasis on proof. And we think that if this proof is also generated because of uh, cooperation between financial institutions and early financial investigation and assets recovery, then, of course, this will also remove the burden of proof on the victim. So that's another possibility that financial institutions can help a lot here to ensure that the victim uh, has access to compensation. A good initiative by the Netherlands, but that only goes for criminal court procedures, is that the state pre-finances the grant awarded by the judge. So that means that the victim is not having to go after the money and to ensure that the perpetrator pays, but the victim uh, gets the money through pre-financement by the state, and then the state will go after the money. So that's a very good example, but I only know this from the Netherlands. And unfortunately, this, of course, only relates to criminal court procedures. If we talk about civil court procedures, then it's already much more difficult. It's very often requiring high costs for victims, but they have to pay themselves. Yeah, you can imagine that indeed a lot of people uh, don't even have the courage, neither the money, to start a civil court procedure against the perpetrator. And of course, there are compensation funds, but in general, there are a lot of conditions for that. 
And so not everyone is eligible. Secondly, the amounts that can be granted by compensation funds are generally much lower. And what we also see in Europe, but also globally, a lot of countries still don't have an adequate compensation fund in place for victims of crime or victims of trafficking. Well, thank you for everything that you and your colleagues at La Strada International are doing to try and change that. Suzanne Hoff, it's been great to have you with us. Thank you very much for joining Fast the Podcast. Thank you so much for your questions and for um, raising also attention for this issue. Partly because of these difficulties in providing effective judicial remedies, some states have experimented with access to non-judicial remedies. OECD countries, for example, have set up a system of national contact points that allow victims of harms caused by multinationals to seek remedy. Some of these NCPs have dealt with cases relating to the financial sector. I spoke with representatives of the Australian NCP about one such case, EC and IDI and Australia and New Zealand Banking Group. Well, I'm very pleased to be joined today on Fast the Podcast by John Southland, Independent Examiner at the Australian National Contact Point, and Tom Dixon, Assistant Secretary responsible for the Corporations Branch in Department of the Treasury in Canberra, Australia. John, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Now, what is the Australian National Contact Point, John? The Australian National Contact Point is a part of Treasury, and and I'm sure Tom will explain better how, how that fits in, but it's part of the Australian government's response as one of 50 governments who have adhered to um, some standards of responsible business conduct. So that's a thing called the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises. And each government that joins this has to establish a thing called a national contact point. And Tom, as the responsible officer in Treasury, is probably the best one to explain how how that works there. So just taking a step back in, in time to around 1976, where the OECD made a declaration on international investment in multinational enterprises. So back then, the declaration was needed for two reasons. One, to support open and transparent environment for international investment. And the other was to encourage the positive contribution that multinational enterprises can make to social and economic progress. Now, there were four elements as part of that declaration. One was referred to as the guidelines for multinational enterprises. And in those guidelines, there are recommendations on responsible business conduct. And the second part of that was to establish a network of national contact points. And those contact points, like the Australian one, the Australian National Contact Point, is to promote the guidelines, but also to help resolve any issues that might arise in relation to compliance with those guidelines. Great. So if I'm a a citizen of Australia, let's say, which happily I am, and I think that there is an issue, as you put it, Mr. Dixon, with the the implementation of these guidelines by an Australian multinational corporation, what's the possibility for me in, in reaching out to the national contact point? How does that work? What's the mandate of the national contact point to help me with that issue? Sure. So uh, I might talk maybe at a high level first about what the guidelines might be there to achieve. And perhaps John could talk a little bit about the process after that. The guidelines essentially say that the first obligations 
of enterprises is to obey domestic law. So the guidelines, they don't substitute or override any domestic law. You could expect that given that the um, guidelines do apply to a broad range of countries, that you may have some differences between domestic law and, and the guidelines. So enterprises are encouraged to meet the domestic law and honour the guidelines to the fullest extent possible. It's provided that adherence to those guidelines doesn't violate domestic law. And the general policies that are outlined in the guidelines, there's around 17, but just to give you a flavour, you know, it's focused on achieving sustainable development. It's about respecting recognised human rights, encouraging local capacity building, encouraging human capital formation, particularly through providing job opportunities and supporting good governance principles. There are many more. Um, that's just uh, a sample of some of them. And somebody that's you know, wondering, well, should I be taking advantage of the services that are offered by Australia's contact point? One of the first things that we would consider is whether or not the conciliation services that we offer would be suited to the circumstance that's been raised with us. So, yeah, we do provide a conciliation service to help resolve complaints, but we are not a court. That's important to understand. So we don't make judgments or make binding determinations or rulings. And we do hear from people who suspect the guidelines are not being implemented by the enterprise. So it might be handy for me to throw to John, who could talk a little bit about, well, what's the eligibility criteria? What do we use to assess somebody's claim? Sure. Thanks, Tom. So I guess then, James, to get back to your question, if you have a concern, these guidelines, you're correct, apply to an Australian company operating wherever it may around the world and also to any multinational operating in Australia. And there are, I guess, four stages of this complaints process. And I'll go through these, but just to outline them, the first one is the initial assessment, which can end up with, yes, we're going to accept this complaint. It's a valid complaint. And then it goes to the second stage of good offices. I'll talk about that. At the end of the process, there's always a public statement. So a final statement, and that may be after that good officers engagement, or if the initial assessment says, look, this is not an appropriate complaint, you're not raising something within the guidelines, then it might be that the statement will be made at that stage. Then there's a follow-up process. So that's roughly the stages. The key part, or, the, or I guess the engine room of all this, is what they call the good officers stage, which is essentially a bit like a mediation or a conciliation, as Tom mentioned. It's an offer to bring the parties together to help them exchange and hear each other's position and views. And it's done within the, I guess, the, the shadow of the guidelines against the expectations of what the guidelines say they expect companies to do. The parties will be free if, they, if their particular interests or perspectives say, well, we want to reach an agreement on that, that's fine. And if they do reach an agreement, then that agreed outcome is often forms the, the public statement at the end of that process. If they don't reach an agreement, then the independent examiner has the responsibility, I guess, to make a statement about what's the relevance of the guidelines in this instance. So it can make some recommendations perhaps to, to the company if they think there's an issue in the implementation of the guidelines that isn't being met here. And then the follow-up, if there are recommendations made in 12 months' time, the AusNCP will follow up with both parties to say, well, okay, what's happened here? So in the past, as I understand it, 
The kinds of issues that have been raised through this NCP process relate to the extractive sector, to the security sector, but also some uh, issues have been raised here and there relating to financial sector companies. And it's it's one of those that I want to particularly talk with you about today, Um, an issue that was raised, I believe, back in 2014 by Inclusive Development International and Equitable Cambodia relating to conduct of ANZ Group and ANZ Royal. Can you tell us a little bit about that issue and how the NCP got involved? About a decade ago, ANZ, as as you said, they're an Australian company with operations in, in many countries, and they provided financial assistance, essentially a loan, to an existing sugar plantation and refinery project in Cambodia. And ANZ has acknowledged that at the time they didn't do perhaps due diligence that was adequate. And when they became known of of issues with social and environmental impacts there, they encouraged their customer to remedy or address those issues. And ANZ's efforts weren't successful. And that relationship with, with the customer ended in 2014. Also in 2014, a complaint was made by Cambodian and US non-government organisations who were working with families and communities in Cambodia, and they made a complaint to the AusNCP in relation to ANZ. So the, the two NGOs, Equitable Cambodia and Inclusive Development International f- from the US. So they made a complaint on about behalf of uh, about 600 families in Cambodia raising issues about human rights impacts concerned with that refinery development, issues of dispossession of land displacement and and questions about intimidation and labour. And in relation to ANZ, they questioned or they asked about concerns about ANZ failing to take reasonable measures to prevent or remedy those impacts. Importantly, they acknowledged, they said, look, we understand, the complaint said, ANZ's only partially, you know, has a partial connection with this. And equally, they have limited ability now. There's there's no longer that relationship there to, I guess, be able to remedy that. But there were various aspects that they they wanted the AusSNP to assist with and looking at ANZ's procedures and particularly the question of the profits or the benefit that ANZ had got from that given the ongoing impacts to the family. So, yeah, there was a complaint that was received in 2014. That's the background to it. People bringing the complaint, the NGOs bringing the complaint, acknowledged that the bank in this case, ANZ, was only, as I think you put it just now, partially connected to the resulting harms. And there was the, the client of the bank that was standing in the middle in a causal sense, if I can mm. put it that way. So what was the the standard against which the conduct of ANZ itself was assessed? And how does that relate to what's required under the, the guidelines, the OECD guidelines? Sure. ANZ, as with any complaint, the assessment is against what's set out, what are the expectations of the OECD guidelines. And these guidelines in relation to human rights involve the UN guiding principles or the UNGPs. And I'm sure you've you've spoken Our about that. Our listeners know them well by now. Yes. Exactly. And yeah. so you'd be familiar with the concept of the UNGP seeing different 
responsibilities on a company, depending on whether it's caused or contributed to or directly linked to an impact. And so they were some of the issues that were, I guess, being raised here. As I said before, it goes through those stages. The initial assessment said, yes, this is an appropriate complaint. It's raised issues within the guidelines. And the OZCP at that stage offered good offices and there was a mediation between the parties, I think probably 2015, 2016, but it didn't result in any agreement between the parties. And so the process, as I explained, needs a a final statement. So the OZCP drafted that statement, made some observations, and and I guess the, the key one which you asked what are they measured against? The OZTP in its statement that was released in 2018 said many of ANZ's procedures are consistent with what the OECD guidelines expects, but it appears in this instance, given these concerns or impacts, and there seems to be quite a lot of evidence of that occurring, questions of whether those procedures were properly followed or, or implemented. And so that was an observation that the OZNCP made in 2018 in its final statement. And that included recommendations to ANZ at that stage to say, broadly, that there should be some strengthening of its procedures to ensure a, a greater consistency with the OECD guidelines. And the OZNCP would be following this up in 12 months' time to see what the parties have done in relation to that. So those observations sound fairly forward-looking, if I can put it that way, in in the statement in 2018. They're talking about how to avoid a recurrence of this kind of outcome. And yet after that statement, as I understand it, John, in 2018, there was an agreement reached between the parties involving some financial redress. So looking back at the, the past harms and seeking to remedy them financially. How mm. how did that emerge and, and what role did the NCP have in that process, if any? Sure. Two points here, I think. The, the first one to pick up on the point that Tom made earlier, that, that OzNCPs are, are not court processes and can't, I guess, give up, here's our decision and that's now binding and you have to you have to comply with that. So the statement in 2018 doesn't exist as a a sort of a a directive or an order, but as I explained, that follow-up process as part of that, both parties indicated a willingness and a desire to engage again. And so essentially this went back into uh, good offices and in February 2020, there was a a further meeting facilitated through the OzNCP and this was just before the great impacts of, of COVID, and, and we're talking now through a webinar, but I recall in, in February, it was it was a little novel that we had communities in Cambodia talking through internet and the bank listening to them and NGOs involved mm. as well. Mm. And the outcome of that was that the parties agreed, and this, this statement's available on our, on our website, the parties agreed, ANZ agreed to pay the the profits that it had received from that project to the communities or to the NGOs for solely for the communities in Cambodia and also to work on strengthening some of its procedures and grievance mechanisms. That was an outcome that the, the parties reached themselves and made that agreement themselves and that then 
became, I guess, the second final statement that the the Oz NCP made, saying, "Well, this is this is the parties agreed outcome that's come through that that Oz NCP engagement." That sounds like a really constructive outcome, John, or, or maybe Tom. Maybe this is in your part of the court. What do you think the implications are for corporations in the financial sector? more broadly from that outcome in terms of how they think about the kind of role they can play in ensuring remedy for adverse impacts arising from businesses that they're lending to or investing in. Are there broader implications here or are these just one-off cases that have no bearing on the broader expectations of the market? I would say that perhaps there are some broader implications and one being that there is a growing focus on good governance, good corporate behaviour. And these sorts of mechanisms, I think, highlight that taking account of those issues early on and building those things into your processes and into your systems within a corporation is a good idea to do rather than perhaps dealing with the consequences of a failure. So prevention being better than cure, I would say, is definitely something. So I do think there are broader ramifications. The thing to remember is that the obligations, they aren't one-off obligations, they're continuous obligations. And they're also refined over time. So the guidelines, while they've been in place for a number of years, they've evolved over time. The current version is dated 2011, and there is a review that's going on at the present to make sure that we're taking account of the expectations that for companies today. So I would say that uh, the other thing is that, you know, remedies can take many forms and they should be thought about flexibly. So in this case, because we are conciliation service, it's something that the parties can think innovatively about what would be the right way to help resolve something. And also, I think it it points to just the benefits of of a process that isn't adversarial in its nature, that you can actually have good corporate governance achieved through these sorts of mechanisms. I think if I can just add something to that, James, because I think this picks up again well on on the UN guiding principles, because in there it talks about effective remedies and effective mechanisms, which can be in in some countries, there might be a, a court process that provides an effective mechanism. It might be that the company itself has a grievance mechanism and and is very attentive to addressing issues of remedy. Or it can be that the NCP or a national contact point, any national contact point process also plays a part in, in that remedy mechanism. So it's not a case that everything has to go through the NCP. The, the NCP will look at, well, what's existing in this context? What, what is the company doing? Maybe what's occurring through other laws and processes there? And looking at that holistically, is enough being done to meet the expectations of the guidelines. In this particular case, it was it was that final agreement that the parties came to themselves through the AusNCP process that then the AusNCP was was able to say, well, having looked at this earlier, where we had some questions, we're now very happy that this is consistent with what the OECD guidelines expect of companies. So you'd say it's quite a flexible tool then, John? Is that a one way to understand it? Yeah, very very much. And particularly in that good offices 
process, like any mediation, you know, mediators trying to help the parties hear and understand each other and, and really get below the initial presenting positions to, well, what are your interests, what are your needs, and try and find and help the parties get to sort of where there's some shared needs or shared interests. And obviously that has to be consistent with the guidelines. So you couldn't, for instance, have a a company saying, look, can we just pay you this amount of money and you go away and we'll continue whatever discriminatory practice or something like that. That couldn't come through a good officers process. But I think the ANZ case is a very good one. You don't pick up the guidelines and it will say every company must provide every profit it makes if there's any impact. Absolutely not. But in this particular case, the parties were prepared to talk and listen and came to that outcome. And that's that flexibility that fits within the guidelines as well. Yeah, I think the other thing I take very much from what you've both been sharing is that that creativity that's innate in the process has to be met by a willingness of the parties to take advantage of that and to think creatively. And that's obviously also then connected to questions about resourcing and the ability of both parties to take that time and to engage meaningfully with the process. So I guess one question I would have for both of you is, are there lessons from from this case or from others that you've dealt with at the Australian NCP about some of the challenges that those who've suffered harms from corporate conduct might face in in exploiting that creative potential that NCP processes can make available. Are there particular challenges that emerge out of this that you've recognised? So in, in regards to challenges, one thing that we recognised was that it did take some time to reach an agreed outcome. So we've learned some lessons around that. Uh, in terms of things that we've done ourselves to help with that, John's role in particular is an innovation. So making sure that we have an independent examiner, I think is very helpful. In addition to uh, the fact that we now have a governance and advisory board, and that that includes some non-government members on that board, that helps to provide additional oversight and accountability, which is another factor that I think only strengthens the NCP. I guess one reflection on, on resources and flexibility, James, is that If you look at the outcome of that ANZ Cambodia case, that is not something that the legal system of either Australia or Cambodia would require. You couldn't go to a court and say, we want this outcome. And so so it is that in that instance, there was a a great flexibility and and, and a preparedness of, of the parties to keep talking. And as Tom was saying, at the time in 2020, they saw their way through to an outcome that they were both prepared to live with, happy to to reach as an outcome. In terms of resources for the parties, the OzSTP has a secretariat, so there are some staff working with Tom within Treasury. We have a website, so if people have questions about, well, what do the guidelines involve? And this this isn't always complainants. Often it's companies with that point. Well, okay, I want to make sure I'm I'm acting consistently with these things. There's there's good material. There's guidances on there to different sectors about what would the guidelines expect you to do if you're operating in this, for instance, in the agricultural sector or in the extractive sector, as you said, or in in finance. So there's some there's some good material there to help companies sort of understand those expectations. 
And John, do you have that website to hand by any chance? Do you know the URL? Yes, uh, ausncp.gov.au. Terrific. Well, I think there's been a wealth of information and insights there, uh, Tom and John, a fascinating process and really terrific to hear that it's uh, delivering effective remedies for the people who are affected. I mean, that's the name of the game here and great to see such a happy outcome in this case. Thank you for all the work that you're doing to make that possible. Is there anything either of you would like to add before we wrap up about about the role the NCP plays in, in realising that right to a remedy? All I would just say is that if, if you think that you would like to approach the OZNCP, we're always available to uh, through the website to answer any questions. So you know, don't hesitate to reach out. Fantastic. As John Southland mentioned, in some cases, companies themselves may provide grievance mechanisms. What role should lenders and investors and other financial actors play in ensuring companies have effective grievance mechanisms in place. To find out, I spoke with Dr. Nia Emanuel about some recent research that she led at the UN Global Compact Network Australia on grievance mechanisms for modern slavery. I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Nia Emanuel. Welcome to Fast the Podcast, Dr. Emanuel. Thank you so much for having me. So, Dr. Emanuel, you've recently been involved in a really terrific report uh, addressing the question of grievance mechanisms at the corporate level. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Thanks, James. Um, I might just give you a bit of background to the report. So in 2020, the Global Compact Network Australia received almost $100,000 in grant funding from the Australian government through the National Community Crime Prevention Program Modern Slavery Grant Opportunity And our project specifically focused on increasing business awareness and understanding of effective grievance mechanisms to address modern slavery in supply chains and including on how to report on this under the Commonwealth Modern Slavery Act. And what we wanted to do was really help business um, increase their capacity to implement effective grievance mechanisms, both in their own operations and in partnership with suppliers. And the key outcomes of this project were a publication and workshop series on implementing effective modern slavery grievance mechanisms. So for our publication series, we interviewed businesses and organisations based in Australia and overseas to develop case studies and a guidance note with good practice examples for business. Now, the case study publication sets out both external um, expectations and standards around the implementation of grievance mechanisms to support remedy for people impacted by forms of modern slavery, but it also outlines the different types of grievance mechanisms that businesses can put in place, either at the operational or company level with suppliers and also through multi-stakeholder initiatives, for instance, through the Responsible Business Alliance. And the guidance note specifically addresses key considerations for the design and implementation of a grievance mechanism that can effectively identify and hear a modern slavery complaint. So that sounds like a really rich evidence base you were drawing on, Nia. What kind of guidance do the international standards, things like the UN guiding principles, provide about how grievance mechanisms should be organised and and managed? So the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, or um, the UNGPs as we affectionately refer to them as, um, set out effectiveness criteria that really help to frame what is an effective grievance mechanism 
And so we really drew on the UNGP's effectiveness criteria in presenting our guidance on what measures a business can take to address uh, specifically each of these criteria in the design and implementation of a grievance mechanism that can identify and hear a modern slavery complaint. So if I can go into a bit more detail about these effectiveness criteria, there are effectively eight that are set out by the UNGPs that a business can use, not just in the design phase, but also in the implementation and measuring effectiveness stages. And although these criteria are broader than just focusing on modern slavery, they really support a business to implement a grievance mechanism that can hear any human rights harm. They do offer specific guidance on what it means for a grievance mechanism to be legitimate, accessible, predictable, equitable, transparent, rights compatible, a source of continuous learning, and importantly for a company-level grievance mechanism, you know, how it can be based on dialogue and engagement. So while this may seem a little bit abstract, I can provide some examples that, that help to illustrate and contextualise how each of these criteria can support a grievance mechanism to be effective. So, for instance, with respect to legitimacy, this might mean that the business formally articulates a structure of accountability for the grievance mechanism and discloses this internally and externally. In terms of accessibility, a business might make the grievance mechanism accessible to anyone who could be impacted by the business's activities. Now, of course, this speaks to the continuum of responsibility that is really spoken to in the UNGPs um, and a business, um, it's probably the most controversial part of a grievance mechanism, is the business deciding has it caused, contributed to or is it directly linked to human rights harm or, or modern slavery related harm. Um, in relation to predictability, a business can articulate and follow a clear procedure for processing and addressing grievances with indicative timeframes for each stage. And this is often really important to um, transparency, which is another one of the criteria where, for instance, the process timelines and possible outcomes need to be communicated with intended users and external shareholders or stakeholders so that there is confidence that's actually built up in relation to the mechanism and trust time and time and again was brought up as one of the key issues in the interviews that we conducted with businesses and organisations now, in terms of the last few criteria, equity, this is really important that businesses provide all necessary information to intended users in a way that's, that's actually understood by those users. That links to rights compatibility as well in that this can be addressed by designing a grievance mechanism that uses the UNGP's effectiveness criteria, which is really at the crux of the guidance that we were promoting to businesses. Now, in terms of the mechanism being a source of learning for business, this can be implemented by tracking, monitoring complaints, measuring the effectiveness of the, the mechanism, which can involve regular seeking of feedback from actual and intended users of the mechanism, which then, um, as you can see, ties into the ongoing dialogue that's really required for these mechanisms to be, you know, functioning at an effective level. So one of the things we often hear from uh, financial institutions, Nia, when we're talking to them about uh, work on, on modern slavery is that there's quite a lot of guidance at the theoretical level, but sometimes it's hard for them to find examples of these things actually happening in practice. One of the things I really appreciate about your work is that you've delved into some real-life examples and case studies of grievance mechanisms. 
Can you tell us a bit about those? What did you find going on around grievance mechanisms to do with modern slavery or more more broadly? Yeah, we found that there were, um, in a way, a a diversity of approaches being used by different companies, but that sometimes the simplest form of grievance mechanism can be the most effective. And I refer specifically to a story told by uh, NXP Semiconductors, whereby, um, you know, having a number on a business card and just giving that business card to workers in a factory can sometimes be the most effective means. And particularly during COVID, even with business closures or inability for companies to go and conduct on-site audits on their own, being able to show that business card to the workers during a factory audit that's happening over Zoom and just just holding that card up to the camera so that people can take down that number or take a screenshot was incredibly important, particularly for migrant workers that have been caught out by COVID um, and factory closures and and unable to get back to their their country of origin. But for instance, there's lots of other types of mechanisms that are being used, worker voice apps, internal speak up hotlines, external hotlines run by NGOs and consulting firms, even things like human resources clinics, which aren't per se grievance mechanisms, but try and pick up issues before they escalate into issues of modern slavery. Also, worker welfare committees can be really effective in this regard. Then you have the third-party complaints procedures that are run by organisations like the Fair Labour Association and the Responsible Business Alliance um, also does very important work in this space. Um, It partners with NGOs in Malaysia to run hotlines, also has just launched a a worker voice platform, which includes a mobile app and also has non-retaliation helplines. So you can read more about these in our um, our case study publication. It's not rocket science, really. They're all pretty standard approaches. But what I found most interesting was that what made a lot of these mechanisms more effective and stronger was the allied support, the the, the wraparound support around these mechanisms. So it was, you know, the affiliations with worker associations, with unions, with NGOs and, you know, affected victims getting in touch with those organisations who could then refer them on to the different hotlines um, or or communicate directly with the organisations. So I wouldn't underestimate the power of those types of networked connections and human connections in having a, a really truly effective grievance mechanism, not just focusing on, on the technology or the technical means through which that grievance can be made. So you mentioned a few different companies from different sectors there. Do any of your case studies look specifically at grievance mechanisms organised by financial institutions? Yes, we interviewed ABN AMRO Bank, which is based in the Netherlands and operates um, comprehensively across Europe. And one of the issues that they really grappled with as a bank, which has lots of different functions, was what level of responsibility the bank has to the activities, say, of its corporate clients, especially regarding the provision of remedy. I know that, you know, in past instances, banks have been caught out where their corporate clients have been linked to human rights harms and, you know, there's some real reckoning to be done by banks in how they provide a bank-level grievance mechanism that can be made available to potentially people affected by their corporate clients. So assessing the effectiveness initially of a corporate client's grievance mechanism is really, really important for banks particularly um, when they might struggle to align their grievance mechanisms to the UNGP's effectiveness criteria 
So it's important that banks, first and foremost, conduct really good due diligence on the ground in their lending relationships to understand what grievance mechanisms exist within that chain of relationships. It can be very difficult for banks in terms of lack of transparency around client relationships. They can often be obscured um, and opaque. This can often make it really difficult for individuals and communities to access remedy through, say, a secondary bank-operated grievance mechanism if those client relationships aren't made transparent. So perhaps this is the most challenging area for the implementation of effective grievance mechanisms is through these relationships that financial institutions have with their clients on the ground. And I know that there is a lot of work that's being done to try and understand how this can become more transparent and how this can be improved. But it really comes back to that question of what responsibility banks are willing to take for potential harms, modern slavery-related harms, that exist in relation to their client relationships. So, for instance, some opportunities in this space are using um, leverage with corporate clients to ensure that there is sufficient access to remedy and lenders working with stakeholders to design bank-operated grievance mechanisms that can be accessed by effective stakeholders and their legitimate representatives that may be impacted by the actions of corporate clients. And just finally, um, as a side note, some of the really impressive work that AB and AMRO Bank are doing is in relation to data analysis of financial transactions. And even though that's not a grievance mechanism, that's really helping them to detect modern slavery practices with their retail clients. Yeah, and I think that raises a really interesting point, Nia, that if you can't even find it, if you can't detect it in the first place, it's pretty hard to assess the effectiveness of, of your or your client's grievance mechanism if you don't know what demand is latent that it should be servicing, if I can put it that way. So, you know, this is obviously, as you say, a fairly new area for a lot of banks and financial institutions. What did the case studies tell you at, at a level of, you know, 30,000 foot generality about how effective grievance mechanisms are providing remedy specifically for victims of modern slavery? That's the golden question. And I think that in order to answer it, I first need to point to the challenges in providing remedy. Um, and a key challenge that was identified in our research was that grievance mechanisms that are being uh, made available to workers are not really being used to report instances of modern slavery. So even though there's knowledge of the prevalence of certain types of modern slavery in supply chains and through reports from civil society organisations, you know, we think that this is pointing to issues of trust, accessibility and legitimacy issues and so the companies that we interviewed are really aware of these issues and, and in recognition of them are trying to build trust with workers and site management to ensure um, effective access and use of grievance mechanisms. For instance, worker voice apps, which are, are, are more general than just um, focusing on modern slavery reporting, are being employed to offer a more holistic one-stop shop that can help to build worker trust in the organisation and credibility for the grievance mechanism. But perhaps most impactful, and I pointed to this earlier, effective working relationships with civil society and worker organisations, including through the staffing of grievance hotlines and in carrying out grassroots socialisation of a mechanism, are being used to really build worker trust in the grievance channel and to promote accessibility. 
So these case studies reveal that there is actually a lot more work that needs to be done to fully align grievance mechanisms with the UNGP's effectiveness criteria. And I would say that accessibility and trust is first and foremost on the minds of companies who are designing grievance mechanisms. So the other thing is measuring the effectiveness of these mechanisms. It's really in its infancy. And what we would like to see more of is, is closer work with civil society and with actual and intended users of these grievance mechanisms to ensure that they are truly effective and capable of delivering a remedy to victims of modern slavery. So, Nia, you point in your answers there to both things that put banks in an advantageous position, you know, their potential leverage with a wide range of corporate clients, for example, but also a few things that maybe make this a bit challenging for banks, including the fact that they have multiple corporate clients. You know, this isn't just a small number of relationships that they're, that they're operating within. What kinds of opportunities and obstacles do you see financial institutions enjoying, I guess, for lack of a better word, in enabling effective grievance mechanisms for modern slavery? This is a really interesting question, James. I think that it comes back to there being a willingness for there to be greater transparency between the bank and the client around the existence of that relationship so that there can be a more effective channel for communication of a grievance back to the bank if the bank is going to have its own company-level grievance mechanism. Alternatively, there are opportunities for a more multi-stakeholder initiative type grievance mechanism to exist whereby the corporate client and the bank or the the bank's uh, multiple corporate clients are all part of the one mechanism so that affected persons can effectively communicate that grievance and it be known by the bank. I think that banks are in a unique position, as you have mentioned, to leverage their relationships with their corporate clients to really build a groundswell to have a more multi-stakeholder approach. I think that if banks don't recognise this and, and, and stay in silos, then we're not going to get very far. So I know that ABN AMRO is working in a more collective action approach with other organisations to really explore and lead in the financial services industry to look at how can we reconceptualise remedy at a more holistic level and who are the key people that need to come to the table so that it's not just the responsibility of the bank, but that it's an initiative that identifies the intersecting responsibility that different stakeholders have to provide effective remedy. Great. Finally, Dr. Emmanuel, if we think about this more from the the user experience end, if I can put it that way, what are the lessons from your work about how to strengthen these mechanisms specifically for modern slavery and for victims and survivors of modern slavery? Users need to really have confidence that they can access a mechanism where their confidentiality is maintained, where there will be no retaliation. For instance, having a suggestion box in a factory foyer with a a CCTV camera pointing at it is not an effective approach that's going to instill any confidence in the user. A grievance mechanism doesn't need to just focus on modern slavery. It can be broader. But users need to be confident that when they make that complaint, the back end of the mechanism will allow for their complaint to go to the right person and be escalated 
at a speed that is um, proportionate to their concern um, and their complaint. So it's really up to organisations that are running these grievance mechanisms to make sure that they can quickly and effectively and confidently manage reports that are made through their grievance mechanisms and offer a really transparent process that continues to build trust so that more people will use the mechanism. Because if a mechanism is effective, a worker can then tell other workers that that mechanism is effective. So looking at just the number of complaints that's made through a mechanism is not by any means going to give any company any accurate indication that that mechanism is effective. It may actually be the opposite. So having um, effective dialogue with workers and their legitimate representatives, civil society organisations about the effectiveness of a mechanism is critical at every point in time to make sure that that, those mechanisms can actually lead to an effective remedy for any affected person. That's the name of the game here, obviously. Clearly, from everything you've said, Dr. Emanuel, there's a long way to go here, but uh, the kind of uh, insight and, and learning that your work has brought to the, the community, I think will help accelerate progress towards that goal. So thank you for everything that you and the Global Compact Network Australia have done in this area. Is there a website that we can point our listeners to to find some of this material? Is it just the Global Compact Network Australia website? It is. It's UN it's UN Global Compact all one word.org.au forward slash publications. And you can find there both our guidance note and our case study publication for business. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And we look forward to hearing more from, from you and from Global Compact in the future. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of this series of Fast Podcast. I'm James Cocaine, founder and senior fellow at Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, signing off. For more information about FAST, to receive the newsletters or to access FAST insights and other resources, please visit www.fastinitiative.org. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.